before my wife gets up and leaves, I promise I'm not going to keep you here all night. It'll probably be an early night because uh, I don't have a ton of notes. But it is a topic that I do feel passionate about, and we're going to be talking about evangelism tonight. So we're going to look at that fifth foundation of evangelism. So if you've been part of the, the last few weeks, we've been doing this whole uh, foundation series, and I'm thankful for the firm foundation that that, that pastor's been teaching, right? We've been talking about uh, the oneness of God, the, the biblical plan of salvation, and the lifestyle of holiness. And those are the four foundations that we've already talked about, and each one is critical to the success of the church. But tonight's foundation stone's no different. In fact, it might be the most important of all of them. And why would we say that? It's because there was a church just like ours in the book of Acts, and they had all the other foundation stones firmly in place. They were known for their purity of doctrine and their in-depth experiences with God. Among all the other churches of the day, they knew that that was the church of Acts. If you wanted to to have an experience with God, that's where you went. I mean, they were the original church in the book of Acts. But that wasn't enough. And when Jerusalem overlooked the foundation stone of evangelism, the Lord placed his blessing and favor on a different group of people. So no matter what, we can't let the same thing happen to us, right? We can't say, well, we've got good doctrine, we've got good holiness, we've got, we've got saints that have been here 20 years, we don't need anybody else. No, that's, that's not it. We, we have to have that, that foundation of evangelism. There's absolutely nothing more important to God than a soul. In fact, the Bible tells us that a soul is worth more than the entire world. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what is a man profited if he, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That's why the most important role of every Christian is evangelism. Sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. We're talking about soul winning tonight. Don't everyone shout and run the aisles all at the same time. Talking about soul winning. It's great, man. I get excited when I hear about soul winning, but when they're like, hey, you need to be a soul winner, I'm like, well, I got excuses. I got things that are going on in my life. I think all of us are that way. But this is the primary purpose of, of the church. It's the primary purpose of every believer, and it's the main reason that the church exists. If we're not personally involved in winning souls, we're not doing what God has called us to do, and he's not pleased with us. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. If anyone calls you a fool, just win a soul. Prove them wrong. I'm not a fool, I'm wise. Proverbs says so. Daniel 12.3 and they that be wise shall, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There is a great reward in heaven for soul winners. Because evangelism is the last and most important command that Jesus gave to his disciples. Mark sixteen fifteen says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In fact, the entire reason that we're given the Holy Ghost is not just so that we can be blessed, right? It's not just so that we can live life above sin, which I believe that that's what we're called to do. But the Holy Ghost was given to make you a powerful witness. Before the Holy Ghost came down, Jesus told him, he said, listen, there's this amazing gift coming. And once you receive it, you're going to have a responsibility that you have to do as well. Acts 1.8 says, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem in all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Look at this next verse, and you see the only problem 
that, that happened in Jerusalem is they overlooked one of God's foundational stones. In Acts 6-7 it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were, were obedient to the faith. The church was promised power in the book of Acts, right? Acts 1-8 tells us that. But the narrative between Acts 1 and 8, when he says you shall re- receive power, and where we're talking about in, in Acts 6-7, it covers a, a time period of about 10 years. And during that time, the, the, the Jerusalem church was blessed with divine visitation. They had miracles. They had things going on. Jerusalem had revival. They had holy boldness, and they grew in the spirit in spite of persecution, opposition, and even internal disputes. Because there's never bickering inside the church, right? Never. But I'm thankful that, that God gave us the Holy Ghost to have joy and have peace. I believe it's important. But God doesn't give us the Holy Ghost just to make us feel good. And I feel like sometimes that's where we get caught up. As we go through life and we have a tough time, and if I can just get to that altar, if I can just have that time with God, and I can just speak in tongues again, I know I'm going to feel good, and I'm going to feel all right. We check off that box, and we say, woohoo, I feel better. I'm a, I, I know I'm on my way to heaven. And then we just sit around and we wait for the rapture. And that sounds crazy, but... By the lives that we live sometimes, that's what we're doing. We come in, we, we, we speak in tongues, we make sure to check off a box, and we don't let God use us to touch other people's lives. We're just waiting on him to take us home. But he gave it to us because he was entrusting us with the responsibility of reaching a lost and dying world. Back to the book of Acts, it says that the, the church in the book of Acts, their growth rate was impressive by any standards. 3,000 people in Acts 2 of 4. 5,000 people in Acts 4 and 4, multitudes of men and women in Acts 5.14. There's even a great uh, company of Jewish priests in Acts 6.7. But all of this was still happening inside of Jerusalem. And he told them, when you get this power, I want you to go, leave, get outside your comfort zone and go talk to people. Go reach other people that aren't like you. Jerusalem certainly enjoyed the rich blessings of the Lord during the the church's first decade. Many souls were, were one within the walls And salvation, it came during that time span. But what about the 99.9% of the rest of the world that wasn't in Jerusalem? I don't believe God came down to earth to save a tiny little city, but he came to save the world, right? But if no one was outreaching and no one was leaving, no one was trying to reach people outside of Jerusalem, how did they expect it to spread? What about other cultures that God specifically told them to reach? I love... I love conferences, right? I love camp meetings. I love conventions. I love church services. The attention that's it's centered on our Jerusalem, right? How many people have gone to a camp meeting or a conference service that changed your life? And you can say, I know I got changed in that time. I felt power like never before. We shall, we shall receive power. That's the first part of Acts 1 and 8. I love how fired up people get after it too, man. After revival services, it's exciting. After Youth Congress, when the youth get up and they give their testimonies, man, it's exciting. I love it. I'm going to General Conference next week, and I'm excited for some amazing services. But receiving power is only the first part. We've not become witnesses, and that's the second part. The second part of the promise is more significant than the first because the test of any real visitation with God is whether or not it results in evangelism. If it was truly powerful, then it would be so powerful that you'd want someone else's life to be changed, right? It's not God just didn't give you a testimony to say, you know what, thank you, God, for it. He gave you a testimony to share. He gave you, he gave you trials and, and struggles because he wanted to get you through them so he could have a testimony for you to reach someone else. 
And the Jerusalem church started out in obedience. But soon they stopped. They wanted to reach just to Jerusalem, just to their own kind. They, did, they didn't really want to go to the ends of the earth or Samaria even. If we aren't careful, we can be the same way. Lord, save my friends. Lord, save my family. Lord, save everyone that's super convenient for me that I don't have to get out of my little bubble for. But that's not what God was calling us to do. They needed, to com- they needed a complete reversal in their thinking. They wanted God to restore again the kingdom of Israel so they could sit in Jerusalem and have nations come to them. But Jesus wanted them to go. They were like, well, we've got something so good that people are going to want to come and they're going to want to hear it, right? I think that's how we feel sometimes is we got the truth and people are going to come flocking in and they're going to come. When was the last time someone came off the streets that no one had ever talked to before that said, I want to know truth and I, I came here to hear it? But we have it. And we all agree that we've got the truth and we're excited for it. But people aren't running down it to, to hear it. Luke 14, 23 says, And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. God says, My desire is to have my house filled, but you've got to go out and you've got to find people. You've got to go all the way out, way past where, where you're like, well, we'll go to the city, right, where that's where all the people are. No, go, go past that. Go to where people are alone. Go to where people are probably even forgotten. And when you find them, compel them to come back with you. Statistics show nearly a universal trend for Christians to disconnect from unsaved people the longer they are around the church. I read that and I was like, man, that can't be true. It's like, no, that's, that's pretty accurate. Because in my mindset, I thought, you know, I, when I got into church, I need to have a strong foundation with just Christians around me all the time because I don't need to have any temptation or I don't need to have any struggles or I don't need to have anything else around me, which it's true. Some of, if your best friends aren't in the church, there's a little bit of a problem, right? Because the people that you need to confide in, the people that you need to talk to about struggles, things like that, a lot of time that they need to have the same morals and, and, and values that you have. But if you shun everyone else in, in the world and you don't have any kind of friends out there, who are you going to reach? That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how Paul did it. They, didn't, they weren't living in isolation, but they were compelled to impact the culture around them with the gospel. You can't win a soul if you never talk to them. Right? You can't win a soul by, by, by having an acquaintance. You've got to get to know people. You've got, you got to care about people. Someone's going to get mad at me for this, but that's okay. You can get mad at me later. But if the only time that you ever talk to somebody is to tell them about God and to tell them about what God's doing in your life, you're not winning that soul. And you truly don't care about theirs. Because if you cared about theirs, you would sit down and listen to what they're going through. You get to know who they are, what kind of kids they got, what are they going through, what kind of activities they are. Because then you can connect and say, you know what, I understand that and this is what God can do for me. Sometimes we're so excited just to share our testimony and to share the gospel that, that we look for, for things that we, we manufacture, possible miracles, Right? I haven't talked to somebody in 20 years, but man, they got cancer now, so I'm going to go quote scripture to them, and I'm going to tell them that they need to to get right with God before they pass away. Did you just pick up the phone and tell them, hey, I heard you're going through something. I love you. I'm here for you. Like, these are things that we need to do. These are the the, the things that we need to do to to get invested into people's lives. If we want to be a soul winner, we've got to care about people and not just care about, well, I, I want to be a soul winner. I want to get numbers into the church. No, 
you're never going to win a soul with a Facebook post. It's not going to happen. I know that's disappointing some people in the room right now, but guess what? You can destroy your witness with one. That was free and not in my notes. But Jesus and Paul, they set this example. They got to know people where they were. They didn't wait for them to come to church and show up on an altar and say, now that you've shown that you're making a commitment, I'm going to commit myself to you and I'm going to get to know your name. And I'm gonna get... No, they went to people where they were. They did the messy thing of getting to know people. Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine, wine berber, a friend of publicans and sinner, but wisdom is justified of her children. 1 Corinthians nine twenty two: To the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. Paul was saying, my, my only goal is to be right there with you. And what you're going through, I want to be there. Whatever you need, I want to be there because that's how much I care about you and that's how much I care about your soul. So what if the church holds on to the, these faulty concepts that says, you know, they're going to come to us and we, need, we don't need to worry about reaching out to them? What if we're not as evangelistic as we should be? What happens is we have churched people that want more churched people, right? I'm excited for, for some people that have came back. I'm excited that we've got the Ellswicks back. I'm excited for other people that have came back. And people might get excited and say, our attendance grew. Guess what? God's attendance didn't. We need to be more excited about, hey, we got some, some first-time visitors here. We've got some, some people that are struggling with things, these other things. That's what we need to care about. We, don't, we just need to look around and say, hey, our house is getting full. That's amazing. But is our house getting full of people that truly need God? And I'm not saying there's not going to be prodigals and people. I, I'm thankful for it, and I think it's going to be an amazing time. But we need to rejoice for souls that are coming because I truly believe they're on their way. Because what happens is if we don't do that, if we get too comfortable with just being around church people and that's it, you get to Acts uh, Acts 8 and 1 and it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church that was in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. We're at the 10-year honeymoon stage, and it was shattered with, with the martyrdom of Stephen, and there was such intense persecution led by, by Saul of Tarsus that suddenly people were being scattered everywhere. But while things grew worse in Jerusalem, great things were beginning in Judea and Samaria. And in one swift act of persecution, God forced obedience in his church and compelled them to mobilize. Because if they all stayed in Jerusalem, then they were going to get persecuted and died, so a lot of them were fleeing. But when they're fleeing, they're taking this message with them. Stephen's death probably resulted in more obedience to the Great Commission than any other single event in the history of the early church and was even a major factor in the conversion of Paul. That statement is it, it's awesome and it's also fearful. Because what it says is that God so loves the world, he loves so souls, no matter where they are, that he will allow anything... in to happen in order for them to be reached. And what that took for the Jerusalem church was they had to go through persecution and they had to be destroyed from within to get them to flee to where he called them to be. I want to be obedient to God's voice, right? I don't want him to to have to pluck me out and put me somewhere else because I I have to be there, but I, I want to go there willingly. 
God is not primarily committed to successful ministries or even great churches. He's committed to the Great Commission. If we will not go, then God has two options to get us out of our comfort zone. One is persecution. He's going to drive us out. Or two, substitution. He's going to find someone who's, who, who's going to go willingly. And when the Jerusalem church continued to resist God, eventually it switched from persecution to substitution. Acts 11.19 says, Now they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Venice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Crene, which when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Grecians, preaching about the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great multitude believed and turned unto the Lord. Antioch was mainly a Gentile city. So it was, it was interesting that they fled to Antioch, right? They were probably f- fleeing there a little bit to blend in because it was a little bit safer. But it's inconceivable that the Christians that went there would only preach to the minority, right? You're going to go to a city where most of those peoples don't believe the same that you believe, but I want you to preach to only those people. No, he wanted to, to, to show them there's other people he wanted to save, and that's exactly what he did. But because their vision was limited to only religious cultures, it took a little bit. But there was a second group from Cyprus and Crane and not Jerusalem that followed the will of God and targeted their efforts to reach the Greek majority of Antioch's population, and the Lord was with them. And that's the moment of destiny, when the church of Antioch was born. And it wasn't because a few church plants from Jerusalem took Jewish culture with them and they supplanted it there. But some were sinfully irrelevant, biblically illiterate Gentiles that got to know God. People that weren't weren't raised in it. People that didn't understand that they had a chance at salvation. These were the people that God got to reach because people were obedient to God. This moment is why the apostolics would soon be known for, as those who turned the world upside down. This, this moment is why the church is here in the 21st century. If it wasn't for that second wave of people, the Gentiles might not have been reached, and we might not have had hope. And Jerusalem never did know how to deal with revolutionary people like Apostle Paul, who continually jumped fences, ignored protocols, and broke tradition to win the lost. That's why they sent him back to Tarsus for a little bit to cool off. When he first appeared with them with Jerusalem, they had wild tales of life-changing encounters with God and wild ideas about evangelizing to all these Gentiles and everyone else. In Jerusalem, they didn't want to they didn't want to send him out, right? So they didn't get to send out this great missionary. The birthplace of where Jesus wanted it to start from wasn't the beginning. Instead, it was Antioch because they had a missionary's heart. Most churches just want to touch their Jerusalem and leave it at that. The Jerusalem Jerusalem church was richly blessed with doctrine, but God still turned his attention to Antioch because they overlooked one foundation stone, and that was evangelism. They wouldn't embrace his commandment to go and to witness to all of the world. Jerusalem held on to their resources and their blessings, but Antioch accepted that God had the right to demand anything of anyone, and he could use anyone. They accepted the Great Commission, and it was at the very top of God's priority list. The Great Commission hasn't changed. It's still one of our values, right? Gather, grow, give, and go. We got to get there. No matter what they achieved, 
they would never feel like they had arrived because they were always focused on their own soul instead of everything else. Acts 11.25, and it says, Then they departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when they had found him, they brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and they taught many people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The first time the word Christian was used wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't with God's chosen people, but it was when people were obedient to God and said, God, whatever you want us to do, even if it's something that we don't necessarily want to do, God, we're going to trust in you, and we're going to be obedient to your voice. And he says that's when they're first called Christians. That's when they were first showing that they were Christ-like. It wasn't just about the miracles. It wasn't just about the, the biblical knowledge, but it was about reaching a lost and dying world. There are only two New Testament church models, the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church. And we have to be one or the other. So the choice is ours. And we can be a bunch of really, really boring people that know the word of God better than anybody else and stick our noses up at people and think we're, we're better than anybody else. And if you, if you don't convert in, in the first six weeks, then I'm done with you. Or we, we, we can be patient with people. And we can love people. And we can, we can be the, the church of Antioch, which was full of risk-takers, risk change, agent, change agents, radicals, people that, that were willing to shake up their world, willing to, to think outside the box. Well, it's not been done this way. That's okay. Maybe that's why that person hasn't been reached, because it's not been done that way. And we need to mix things up so we can reach everyone that we can. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I told you it wasn't going to be long, so we're, we're actually in my final notes here, which is pretty awesome. So if you can stay awake for just a few more minutes, I promise we'll, we'll, we'll get you out to be a life changer today, right? But every person has a choice. They can either be a missionary or they can be a mission field, Right? Matthew 4.19 says, And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So if you're not fishing, then are you following? That's tough, right? Because it's always, no, I love God with all my heart. Man, I would do anything for the Lord. Man, I come to church every Sunday. I come to church every Wednesday. I tithe. I'm the first one to volunteer to do this. I'm the first one to do that. Cool. Who are you fishing for? can't call yourself a follower if you're not fishing. So what do we believe about evangelism? One, evangelism should be personally oriented. Christians should be good news before they share the good news. You need to show love before you can ever try to teach love. You got to smile. I know that's hard sometimes, Sarah. You got to smile. I mean, technically the Bible says what? You got to show yourself friendly, right? got to show yourself friendly. It doesn't mean you always got to be friendly, but, but, but if we're going to reach people, we need to smile. We need to make ourselves approachable. We need to make ourselves available. That's the tough one for me. Got to make yourselves available. There are many types of, of different evangelism. There's the confrontational style, like Peter in Acts 2. What do, we do, what do we need to do to be saved? Repent, be baptized, every one of you. There's times that people are just going to come out and they're going to need to know that. But you can't lead off your first interaction with someone with, hey, do you go to church? I do, and you need to repent, and you need to... 
it's not going to work. There's the intellectual style in Paul in Acts 17. We can show our knowledge and get to know people that way. Like the blind man in John 9, we can, be, we can give our testimony. Matthew and Luke 5, we can be interpersonal. We can get to know people. We can connect with them. The invitational style, like the woman at the well in John 4. The serving style in Dorcas uh, in Acts 9. There's different ways that we can connect with people, right? You don't always have to be a super outgoing person to connect with somebody. Sometimes it's being a servant's heart. Sometimes it's doing little small things. It gets people's attention, and it opens up doors. Two, evangelism should be people-oriented. An evangelistic event tends to rush people rather, but an evangelistic process is patient with people. We've all been guilty of it before, right? We're going to have a special service, so we're going to have Friends Day, so I need all of your friends to come, and we're going to focus on, on, the, on the event of Friends Day because we're going to have all these activities and things like that. We should be focusing on how many people can we connect with that day? How many new, new faces can we get? How many, how many new friends can we make that day? It's not about getting attendance numbers. It's about getting to know the people so that God can, can transform their world. Evangelism should be team-oriented. A person's coming to God is like a chain with many links. You don't have to be every link. You just have to be one. Right? Some of us will plant the seed. Some of us will water the seed. One of the things that I love to do is I love bringing my unchurched friends around more of my other church friends. And I'm not saying I bring my unchurched friends to church to do that. I will intentionally have some of my friends that don't go to church, and I'll invite another couple or another group of friends to come and hang out with us and socialize because I want them to see that it, it's not just me, right? There's other people and when they start to see something in me and they start to see something in Caleb and they start to see something in Pastor and, and Hector and, and Reuben and all these other, okay, well, maybe it's not just, maybe there's something to this. It, it, it establishes something, right? Sometimes we get so protective that we bring a visitor to church and this is my visitor, right? This is my soul that I'm going to win. This is my jewel, my crown in heaven. And, and I'm, no, we're all just playing a part. Brother Bovi could invite somebody and you know what? It might not be anything that he ever says that gets them to come to an altar, it might be something that Micah does. But if Micah says, but that's Brother Bobie's guest, and I don't really know them, and I'm hands off, then everyone's a link, right? We got to play our part. We, we, we got to be open to say, you know what, this is, this is a process, and we're a team. And I, as soon as I see someone that walks in the door, it, one, I'm never going to know if God wants me to reach them or not or has something for them if I don't even go up and shake their hand and learn their name. And learning their name is tough for me, I will admit. I can't remember names very well, so if I call you brother or sister for years, I apologize. But it's what we need to do, right? Brother Bill's great at it. I don't know how he does it, but he's, he's great at it. But it, it, it shows me they, that they truly care when they know who I am. When, so when they come back next Sunday or next Wednesday, or hopefully when you shoot them a text message or give them a call on Monday or Tuesday and say, hey, it was good to, to see you, those are connections that we can have. You get them in the door, and I promise someone here can connect with them. Even if, like, man, God's dealing with me to witness to this person, and I don't want to spend any time with them at all, that's okay. There's somebody here that wants to spend time with them. Bring them here. And get involved. Get them involved. Not only, this is a tangent, and I apologize, it's not in pastor's notes, but if the only time you ever socialize with people is when you're trying to get them to church, it's not going to work. 
form a friendship with them, even if, you, if it's not like, well, they're not my friend, they're not my cup of tea, they're not who I want to spend time with. But if God's put a burden on your heart for them, you need to spend time with them because he's going to open a door, but he can't open the door if you're never around. Evangelism should be eternity-oriented. If one soul is worth more than the entire world, then any person we meet is incredibly valuable to God. And what I mean by this is, sometimes the people that we witness to, the people that we invest in, the people that we spend time in, they're never going to walk through our church doors. They're never going to drop a dollar in the offering plate. They're never going to volunteer to do anything. But they might be involved somewhere. And they might be, be a witness of someone. And as long as their soul's going to heaven, it doesn't matter if they're an attender here. What matters is, is that God's reaching souls. That's what matters. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how, how, to, how ought to answer every man. 1 Peter three fifteen. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of hope that, that is in you with meekness and fear. What I love about these verses is they get really intimidating because it says I'm supposed to have an answer whenever someone comes up to me, so I need to, I need to know everything before I... Just be ready to answer. God's going to give you the words. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. Some of the greatest soul winners in the Bible and some of the greatest soul winners that I've ever known aren't, aren't preachers. They're people that love people, and they're, they're willing to have those conversations and say, you know what, God, I don't have the answers, but I'm going to trust that you're going to give them to me. Matthew 9, 37, 38 says, Then he said this unto the disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, for the harvest, that he will send forth the laborers to do this harvest. And you know what Jesus did immediately after he told the disciples to, to pray for laborers? He said, guess what? Spoiler alert. You're the laborers. You got to go. God, send us missionaries. Guess what? He has. God, send us Sunday school teachers. He has. We just need to respond to it. Last scripture I've got tonight is Isaiah 6, 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who, and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. I love the fact that he finished this one, the series on foundations with evangelism, because it's so important. It doesn't matter how, much, how many Bible stories we can recite. It doesn't matter if I look the part of, of, of holiness, if I live a, a, a sinless life and I'm, I'm perfect in God's eyes. If I'm not a soul winner, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. That's what we need to be. That's where our heart needs to be. Can we all stand? We'll, we'll, we'll dismiss in prayer tonight.